0: You'd open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're in verse 42 this morning. And I'm a little impressed that you came back this week because last week we did 41 verses. And this week we're doing five. So you're welcome. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. five verses there. One of the big questions that comes to mind when we are going through the book of Acts, whether just reading it ourselves or through a sermon series, one of the big questions that we often run into is this. Are miracles, wonders, and speaking in tongues intended by God to be normative in the Christian's life? Is it something that you and I should experience today, even in service this morning or in the second hour? Um, In last week's passage, we saw that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was accompanied with this speaking in tongues, which in that instance was a multitude of known languages, languages, but previously unlearned by the ones speaking them. And so what we found was that people from foreign regions who were from all over the world, in town in Jerusalem uh, for the festival of Pentecost, they heard the wonders of God being proclaimed in their own native tongues. And it was conspicuous, it got their attention. And I noted uh, last week that speaking in tongues, such as we find in uh, Acts chapter two, and then also throughout the book of Acts, that it was primarily intended as a sign, a sign to the international God-fearing community of the arrival of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant with him, such that God's people were no longer limited just to tablets of stone and laws that, by which they were condemned, but that God had put his very Holy Spirit within them, moving them to naturally obey God's law. And this shift was marked by or authenticated by uh, these signs. And so this this same sign, speaking uh, in foreign tongues, it also seems to show up a couple other times in the book of Acts, um, specifically when the gospel seems to break into new areas, new regions, uh, where previously it wasn't. In fact, you can almost chart it, and we'll get to this later on in our series, you can almost see, uh, if you think about Acts 1.8, they're to stay in Jerusalem, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. As we find the gospel breaking into these new areas, we see it authenticated with the sign of speaking in tongues. So interesting how that lays out. We'll get to that more later. But as we move into um, the remaining verses here uh, of chapter 2, we find again signs and wonders. So it begs our question, are wonders and miracles and speaking in tongues intended by God To be normative in the Christian life, is it something you and I should experience? And I think the answer to this is this. It seems to me that signs and wonders were normative in the lives of the apostles. When I say apostles, I mean capital A Apostles, the 12 plus Paul. And they seem to have accompanied the apostles in their ministry as a way of verifying their authority. And authenticating their message. And Paul says this much explicitly uh, in Second Corinthians 12:12, 12, 12, where he says, I, pers- or I, "I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders and miracles." So this was sort of the, the badge, so to speak. This was the authenticating, legitimizing sign that one was a true apostle and that one could sort of trust their ministry and their word. Uh, I told you a couple weeks ago that I had my wallet stolen, remember this, from the gym of all places, so irritating. Five minutes I left my locker uh, unlocked while I was showering after working out and I came back and my wallet had been taken, and since then, I cannot tell you how many phone calls and emails and text messages I have gotten, many of them indicating that your identity or whatever has been compromised, and most of them are phishing schemes. So I'll get a phone call, did you know that blah, 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 and like, I never even had an account there. So And oftentimes, the phishing call, they're like, can you just give us your social security number and we'll whatever... And we know, we know this is a scam, right? When, we get these, when you get a call from somebody and they're asking for personal information or financial transactions, you know to say, no, I don't do those things over the phone. And if I do, it's because I call you, because then I know who you are. You call me out of the blue and tell me you want my information or some money, I don't know who you are. There's nothing to authenticate you or legitimize you to me. So that's why we don't do that. And in the first century world, here we have, as God has empowered his apostles, his servants, to proclaim the gospel, to take it into new territories, he gives them a way to say, here's my badge. Here's how you know I can be trusted. Here's how you know I am legitimate. And it was often one of these kinds of signs, these these kinds of wonders. This is incredibly important for the apostles when you think about what their job and what their responsibility was. They are to establish the church. They are to pen the scriptures. They are to lay down the doctrine and the practice of the church. They're the foundation along with Christ. And Paul says this much in Ephesians 2. He says, consequently, you, speaking of sort of the household of faith, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with christ jesus as the chief cornerstone so the doctrine and the practice of the church this isn't something that could just be cobbled together by you know any kind of whim or or anybody who wanted to have a go at it like a wikipedia article right can you imagine i mean we could actually and there's some funny stories in the last few years about how people because of the powers of social media, internet, and things like Wikipedia, that they can actually manipulate even the stock market. Remember hearing about the, what was it, GameStop uh, stock that went up like crazy, or Bitcoin? Because people could just kind of angle in and manipulate the system and prop up its value and profit from it. Can you imagine if there were no authenticating or corroborating signs of who was really an apostle, and it was just a free-for-all? I think the church should be like this. I think the church should be like that it'd be crazy so God established apostles who would lay the foundation of the church but they needed to have credentials they needed to have apostolic chops and this was one of the ways these signs and these wonders were one of the ways that God visibly deputized them and verified who the Apostles were for this particular ministry Additionally, it also seems clear from church history and I think from Scripture also that as the apostles died off, uh, that these authenticating miracles or signs diminished significantly. Now, I don't want to go as far as to say that they ceased completely. Uh, For those of you who kind of know different theological positions, I'm, I'm not what you would call a cessationist, not a hard and fast cessationist, meaning that all of these miraculous gifts have ceased. I'm a practical uh, cessationist. Uh, I I think they're still possible. I'll get into that more in a minute here. Um, But what we find is, and I think this is really significant, that as the apostles, the 12 plus 1, as they began to die off, as they hit their retirement age, as they didn't just move to Florida, right? They had a plan for the church on how it was to continue past them. But interestingly, they had no apostolic succession plan. They don't appoint other apostles. What they do is they instruct the churches to establish elders, a plurality of elders in each church, who will protect and defend sound doctrine as they have already laid it out. And I think that's significant. So let me go all C.S. Lewis on you here. And what I mean by that is saying what I mean and what I don't mean, because that's to read C.S. Lewis is to read that line way too many times. What I'm not saying, I am not saying that miracles no longer happen. I am not saying that speaking in tongues is an impossibility. What I am saying is, I don't find these to be necessary, normative, nor nearly as frequent as we find them in the days of the apostles. God can do a miracle anytime he wants. The Holy Spirit is alive and well and does powerful things. But I don't expect to see signs and wonders, like we find in the book of Acts, today as normative. Because they were authenticating signs to validate the ministry and the message of the apostles. So that's where we're starting with this. But that being said, I think there is in our passage a sign, uh, an incredibly powerful sign for the Christian church today. Something that should be normative for the Christian church. Something that should also authenticate and verify a true and legitimate faith. Something that also has a compelling witness to the unbelieving or skeptical world. A sign that the presence of God uh, has changed the lives of those uh, who have pledged their allegiance to him. A sign that we should pay attention to here in this passage. So what is this sign, you ask? it is the title on your outline this morning and the title of our sermon. It is the sign of Christian community. And I find that this ought to be normative and enduring. Last week, we ended um, with the passage that talked about, and the Lord added to their number 3,000 people that day. And today we pick up in verse 42. I'm going to read it again for us. This group of 3,000 plus the 120, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by whom? By the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So the first point this morning is this. Authentic Christian community is sign to skeptics. I think this passage, these five verses, probably shows us one of the most beautiful and compelling pictures of Christian community in the scriptures. At least it's among the top. Um, and I think it's fair to say also that This kind of close, intimate community is something that we all long for, or at least we all long to receive. We wanna be a part of it at that level. We really do wanna know other people. We want to be known by them. We wanna have what I like to call refrigerator privileges when we're in their house, right? Maybe we'd even let them into our refrigerator. We wanna know that when we need a hand with the project, there's a buddy we can call who will get on the other side of the board from us. We want to know that when we're discouraged that we can make a phone call and someone will come sit with us and be with us in that and know how to encourage us. We want to know that someone will pray hard for us when we ask. We want to know that if we have some kind of unexpected loss, some calamity that comes our way, maybe even a financial loss, that there are people in our lives that would even be willing to share what they have with us. Um, I I would also point out here a little bit of a side note. Notice the size of the church that achieved this. How big is the church at this point in Jerusalem? 3,000 plus, right? I think that's significant. Because I think it's very common for people to make value judgments about a church based upon its size. Uh, You often hear somebody say, Small churches are good churches. Big churches are bad churches, or the reverse. Small churches clearly have no significant ministry going on. Large churches must have it going. I wanna say the size of a church is inconsequential. It's certainly inconsequential when it comes to the quality of its community, or of its worship, or of its discipleship. What matters is the commitment of its people. That's what matters. And I think it's really striking that the prettiest picture of Christian community in the New Testament um, is not performed by a little church of 50 in a little rural community. It's performed by over 3,000 people almost overnight who came to know Christ, a megachurch in the metropolis of Jerusalem, if you will. Um, Again, oftentimes we think of, you might hear somebody go, well, house churches were the pure churches in the first century. Uh, you'll, you'll hear this kind of thinking. I had a chance a few years back to travel to Turkey, and one of the places I got to go while I was there was Ephesus, oh man, so cool. Uh, to see you know, the stadium where the riot erupted, you know, where they chanted great as Artemis, great as Artemis, Paul was nearly killed there. To see a place uh, where Paul lived uh, for years, to see a place where he ministered, to see a place even when we talk about house churches, You want to see a picture of a house church in Ephesus? You ready? There you go. I couldn't get the whole church in the field of view of my picture. When we picture house uh, church, when we read the scriptures, we think we impose upon it our house, right? Three-bedroom rambler, 1,700 square feet, something like this. This was a house church in Ephesus. Again, I can't even get it all in, in the field of view of my Of my camera here and all i'm trying to say here is this that there is not a right sized church we may have our preference and that's perfectly fine but we need to be careful not to moralize our preferences right what god is after are healthy churches that are made up of people who have been radically changed by the gospel of jesus christ in such a way that it affects every corner of their everyday life And one of the results will be authentic Christian community. People who are devoted to each other. And I think there's four things that just give us a picture of what this looks like in sort of the everyday. And I wanna be careful about this too. When you're reading the book of Acts, one of the real things you have to guard against is asking yourself the question, what is prescriptive and what is descriptive? Sometimes the book of Acts is just reporting the events that happened. And not saying, this is what you ought to do. Sometimes it's just reporting. But I'm going to call these things here prescriptive, not because they're spoken of that way in Acts, but because we see them corroborated elsewhere in Scripture as a prescriptive thing. Does that make sense? So just as a tool when reading the book of Acts, be careful. Is this prescriptive or descriptive? If it's repeated elsewhere in the New Testament and the epistles, you can trust it as prescriptive. But the first is this. The Christian community is devoted to the apostles' teaching. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. John Stott has said this really beautifully. He said, They immediately became a learning church. A learning church. The gospel had changed the seat of authority in their life. The teaching of the apostles, which we wonderfully have bound together today in the color and copy and version of our preference sitting in our own lap, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They committed themselves to learn of it. They were hungry to receive instruction. They sat readily at the disciples' feet. John Stott has another great line here. He says this, anti-intellectualism and fullness of the Spirit are mutually incompatible because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Let me say that a different way. I have a professor that I studied with, um, Ryan Lister is his name, at Western Seminary. I had a class from him, uh, I think about eight months ago now. And he was hanging out, had lunch with some of his uh, sort of charismatic or Pentecostal friends. They're good friends, and they tease each other regularly about things and different points of theology. And as he was getting to go back to the seminary and into his study, um, one of his, uh, his charismatic friends said to him, hey, Ryan, have fun reading about your faith. I'm going to go experience mine. That was his little jab. And that's what I'm talking about. That's not what we find in the scriptures. Do we find the the apostles or the early followers of Christ simply saying, We're just going to go experience our faith? We find themselves devoted to learning, to the study, to the teaching of the apostles. The Christian community at first began to be a learning community. So let me ask you a couple of sort of application questions for you. First of all, is the Scripture an authority in your life? Is it authoritative? Do you see the Word of God as for your good, sharp edges and all? Second question, is it not just an authority? Is the Word of God a priority in your life? that you would want to know God through his written revelation? It is it a priority such that your life would be changed by it? Is it a priority in such a way that faith and practice would come from what it says in imitation to Jesus? One of the big movements in Christianity today, if I can say that, uh, is something called progressive Christianity. And what it really attempts to do, if it, just to boil it down to a very simple sort of, Maybe overly simple, but a simple understanding of it, it just tries to smooth out the rough edges of Christianity. Those places where it really seems to confront our culture today, say something like in the LGBTQ plus community, the teachings of the scriptures that seem really at odds with that, they're gonna smooth out and interpret differently. It basically seeks to accommodate the scripture to culture rather than to let our lives and the culture be subject to the authority of the scriptures. So, is the Scripture an authority in your life? Is it a priority in your life? The third, thing, third question I would ask you is, do you have a Bible reading plan? Do you have a plan? Because you need one. In the same way that you need a financial plan. If you don't have a budget, uh, you're going to be in some financial difficulty. If you don't have a food plan, you're going to eat at McDonald's. Way too much. If you don't have a fitness plan, All that McDonald's is going to be trouble for you, right? You're going to have a problem. We know if we don't have a plan in these things, life falls apart. Same thing. If you don't have a plan to have an adequate intake of the Word of God, you are going to end up impoverished, malnourished, and out of shape spiritually. You need a plan. Um, And I will tell you this. Some people will say, I have a plan. I, I listen to the pastors at Bethel preach on Sunday morning. That's my plan. I'm going to tell you. Insufficient. Insufficient. I, I love to proclaim the word of God to you, and I know my brothers do as well. But you need to have a living and dynamic relationship with God himself as he speaks through his word by the power of the Holy Spirit to you. You can sit there and go, you know, I know that's really Eric's pet peeve, and he quoted Tozer and blah, 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 and that's his favorite verse, and you can dismiss me. But when God the Holy Spirit penetrates your heart and mind because of what you read in his word, that discovery, that interaction with the living God is powerful. And I don't really think I can compete with that. You need to hear the word of God proclaimed, yes, but you need to be steeping in it yourself. It needs to be alive and well in you and again the letter and the letter to the colossians the apostle paul would say this explicitly he would say let the message of christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the spirit singing to god with gratitude in your hearts in other words i'll tell you this while the ministry of the Word is a priority for me and my life, and my role as one of your pastors. The Word ministry of the church is not limited to the pastors or to the elders or to the deacons. The Word ministry of the church is a work of its people. And you all need to be steeping in the Word of God and learning of it and being conformed by it so that when we are together, we are constantly being drawn closer and closer to Christ and His likeness and the unity that comes from that. Secondly, true Christian community is devoted to one another. Devoted to one another. Uh, I think there are a lot of churches today where people show up to be attenders, merely consumers, to receive religious goods and services. But they don't feed into that they don't contribute to it. Um, You guys know the old rule, it's called the Pareto principle, that the 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. Uh, I'll tell you that I think that principle right now in this present moment in the life of the church is even accentuated. It's probably more like 90-10 right now. And the reason why I think, this is just a theory, I don't have a study, I don't have a paper to back it up, just observation. One of the results of COVID, just as it affected the supply chain, right? Have you guys noticed the supply chain has been affected a little bit out there? The scariest thing in the world is to take your car and to be repaired right now, right? Oh, we need to order uh, such and such. That'll be six months. Just leave your car here, right? Supply chain has been interrupted. But one of the things that's been interrupted in the life of the church is sort of the onboarding of newer people to the church in terms of moving from just attenders to contributors. That's the interruption the church has experienced. Now, I want to nuance this. If, if you're a guest this morning, if you're skeptical of Christianity and just checking it out, if you're a new Christian and trying to figure out, is this even a healthy church? Do they preach the word of God here? You've got some time. We'll give you a window. <laughs> You have a window. We want you to um, make a decision that this is your church home, that this is, in fact, your faith, and that these are your people. But having made that decision, it's also time to shift and to mature into it and to say that I haven't just been saved from sin. I've been saved into the family of God. And God has entrusted me with spiritual gifts and things that I need to contribute for the sake and the health of my family, my church family. We have to move. We have to move from just being attenders to being contributors. Um, again, too many people, I think, consider the church as something of other people. And when they, even when they use the word church, they think, well, it's the building. Or, no, it's the pastors. No, it's the pastors and the elders. Oh, it's the pastor, the elders, and the members in the building. And it's the thing I go to. And so the reality you need to be confronted with is if you have crossed the line of faith, if you have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and the Holy Spirit is alive and well in you, you're the church. You are. The early church was devoted to one another. And we get a beautiful picture of, and, and a costly picture of what this looked like. They were, it says all the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to gift to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They sold property and possessions because they knew someone had a need. That's an amazing thing. Talk about costly. I, Plenty of people will come to a church and say, I really want to belong. I really want Christian community. And I'll I'll throw it back at you. That's great. Do you want to be Christian community for someone else who needs it? Are you willing to be on the giving side of it? Uh, I think it's also important to understand this passage is not about renouncing all ownership. In fact, we're told that they ate together where? In their homes. So they had homes, right? They had things. They had things that they could sell if the need came up. Um, But one of the things that this passage shows us is that their concern for one another outweighed their drive for personal possession. And I think that application has sharp edges uh, for our life today. Okay. Thirdly here, true Christian community is devoted to the sharing of meals. Um, I wanna dig in on this a little bit. Uh, It's wonderful to go out and have a coffee or breakfast or lunch with somebody, but that really honestly pales in comparison to inviting somebody into your home, your sacred private space, right? To share a meal together. And I wanna ask you this question. I'm sort of curious about this. When you go into somebody's home, what's the first room room you wanna go into? The kitchen, others, the bathroom. I heard the bathroom over here. Don't invite them. <laughs> no, just... living room. Okay. Some guys are like the garage. I want to see what this guy does with his hands. Right. Where I want to go, I want to go wherever they keep their books. I love why. You show me someone's bookshelf, I instantly know quite a lot about them. Not A. W. Tozer anywhere to be found. <laughs> Are they even saved you know. <laughs> you go into someone's home and you look around you're like oh louis lemore okay they like louis lemore what's their coffee game oh they're a pour over family they do a pour over all right she's got a knitting basket over here of projects cool something to know you look on the fridge hey we support some of the same missionaries someone in here is a photographer and then you look at the all-important woodshed and learn everything you need to know about them, right? <laughs> this is somewhat for entertainment value, but funny. So um, this book was a gift to me by our resident logger. Some of you know who I'm talking about. Uh, it's called The Norwegian Wood Chopping, Stacking, and Drawing Wood the Scandinavian Way. It's a long title. Yeah. Something that uh, this is for you ladies out there, single ladies, looking out for you. This is what you can tell about a bachelor from his, we got got a lot of single gals over here. This is our college crew, right? This is what you can tell about a bachelor from his wood pile. You ready? Upright and solid pile, upright and solid man. (laughs) Low pile, cautious man, could be shy or weak. (laughs) Tall pile, big, uh, ambitious, but watch out for sagging and collapse. (laughs) Usual shape or unusual shape, Free thinking, open spirit, again, the construction may be weak. Flamboyant pile, widely visible, extroverted, but possibly a bluffer. A lot of wood, a man of foresight, loyal. Not much wood, a life lived from hand to mouth. Logs from big trees, has a big appetite for life, but can be rash and extravagant. A pedantic pile, perfectionist, may be introverted. Collapsed pile, weak will, poor judgment of priorities. Unfinished pile, some logs laying on the ground. Unstable, lazy, prone to drunkenness. (laughs) (laughs) Everything in a pile on the ground. Ignorance, decadence, laziness, drunkenness, possibly all of these. (laughs) Old and new wood piled together, be suspicious, might be stolen wood added to his own. (laughs) Large and small logs, piled together, frugal, kindling sneaked in among the logs, suggests a considerate man. Ladies, there you go. Rough, gnarled logs, hard to chop, persistent, strong-willed, or else bowed down by his burdens. Uh, no woodpile, no husband. <laughs> so, <laughs> you can tell a lot about a guy, a lot about a fella from his woodpile. You can tell a lot about a person when you walk in their home, when you see how they keep things, what's important to them, how they live. There's nuances, there's things they're speaking to you. There is nothing like sharing a meal together in someone's home. This is hospitality. It's different than entertaining. Martha Stewart's gonna lead you towards entertaining. The apostles show us hospitality, which is making room for strangers, and sharing what we have. That's Christian hospitality. And I believe with all my heart that if the Christian church today would practice sincere, authentic, giving hospitality the way the early church did, that there would be a revival. That the observing community would say, the gospel has changed these people's lives such that they're devoted not just to themselves and getting ahead and feeding their retirement accounts so that they can be alone and vacation by themselves. They're devoted to one another. That's a supernatural kind of change. When the observing world sees Christian community doing community together, it is powerful. Leslie Newbigin, the the, uh, missiologist, has said this, the local congregation is the hermeneutic of the gospel. It's the explanation of it. It's how it's lived out. It's what it looks like. Francis Schaeffer is called the observable love of believers one for another the final apologetic of the gospel. It defends it. Last one here. True Christian community is devoted to prayer. In our devotion to prayer, whether it's before a meal or whether coming alongside a friend who is hurting or in praise with someone over the good news that they have, The Christian community's devotion to prayer is a reminder to all of them that they are first and foremost God's community, a community that he has put together, that he has saved, that we are saved by him, that we belong to him, and that we are representing him. Our community is not about a bunch of people who have found some kind of random like-mindedness. It's about a group of people who belong first and foremost, to God. And when we come together and pray, we continually remind ourselves of this. I'm running out of time here. What was the result of these kinds of things as they practiced them? What does the last line say in the text? Verse 47. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Who did it? The Lord did it. And I think that's important to see as well. Otherwise, we might think, well, this is just an exercise in humanism. If we do all the right things, we'll get all the right results. We can manufacture a church growth movement just by doing these four things. No, that's not true. The Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. I started off my message by saying that uh, Christian community was a sign, an enduring sign of the legitimacy of the gospel and the way that it changes people's lives such that they would be devoted to one another and that it would be evidence to the observing world. They would see this change and it would authenticate the gospel. And so I want to read to you in closing here this letter. It's an historical letter. It's to a man by the name of Diognetus. Uh, it's, from, it's either, it's first or second century, maybe as early as AD 130. Uh, it's included in a lot of the church father's work as a, a letter sort of of apologetics, showing the legitimacy of the faith in the ancient world based upon the way Christians comported themselves and so here is what this here is what is said by the observing community of the way that Christians lived and how it was conspicuous okay So this is not scripture just a work of history but a witness of Christians nonetheless Christians are indistinguishable from other men either by nationality language or customs they do not inhabit separate cities of their own, or speak a strange dialect, or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based on reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it's Greek or foreign. Yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, yet they live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood, they are put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse, deference their response to insult. For the good that they do, they receive the punishment of malfactors, but even then they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. They are attacked by the Jews as aliens, they are persecuted by the Greeks, yet no one can explain the reason for this hatred. They lived conspicuously in the community around them, such that people had to press in and figure out what was it that made them different and we know it is the life-giving sacrifice of Jesus Christ let's pray father we rejoice that we have been made your family brothers to Christ sons of God Lord may we take that seriously may we be devoted to one another in these ways and the examples that were given to us by the early church. Lord, we pray that your word and all of its sharp edges will confront us and cut us where it needs to. May we submit ourselves to you and to your Holy Spirit as you speak to us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.